And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Gene Sperling has been in and around the making of American economic policy for three decades. He was a young aide to uh, Bill Clinton in the early 90s and ultimately became the director of the National Economic Council. Later in the Clinton administration, it was a role he would reprise in the Barack Obama administration in the years of recovery from the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009. Now he's written a book called Economic Dignity that seems particularly appropriate uh, to the challenges of this time when the COVID-19 virus has caused us to induce the deepest economic crisis that we've faced uh, since the Great Depression. I sat down with Gene the other day to talk about all of this and his own extraordinary journey that included a stint as a scriptwriter and consultant for the West Wing. Here's that conversation. Gene Sperling, great to see you again, great old friend. You've written this book called Economic Dignity, and it seems as if it was written for this moment in some ways. But before I get to that, I want to talk about your own journey, some of which I knew and much of which I didn't. Some of it came to light just the other day because you lost uh, your mom, Doris, who was a legendary figure in Ann Arbor as, a, as an educator and as an education innovator. But tell me about your family. You, you, this is not one of those rat sort of, uh, he came from the wrong side of the tracks and made his way in the world. You kind of came from the right side of the tracks, but you have such an interesting family. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm not one of those people could run for office with a, a rags to riches story. I, I'm somebody who you'd say, uh, boy, you would have really had to screw up with parents like that because they were... You know, I mean, they have a great story. They met on the train to the University of Michigan in their freshman year, started going out their first day, married on graduation day. And I had two parents who were the types of people that just uh, were fighters for economic justice, for racial justice. Uh, he was my dad was a lawyer. And, you know, we, we watched him not only, you know, run the local ACLU or, or be the vice president of it, uh, but, you know, we watched him win major civil rights victories. He won the first case to allow girls to, to have a constitutional right to play on boys' high school sports. And we watched my mother, uh, you know, just be a total champion for, or for, you know, every kid very focused on the racial achievement gap decades ahead of her time on individualized learning. Where did that come from? I know that your 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 mom uh, lived, and this was noted, I think, in her obituary in, in the segregated South in Florida, and she saw the hard edge of segregation as a child. How did that play into that, these passions? You know, one of the things I admired so much about my parents, David, was, again, I was in many ways you know, grew up with this dinner conversation that was so about economic justice. Neither my mother or, or father necessarily grew grew up in that kind of environment. They just both on their own, uh, you know, had just this, this intrinsic sense of justice. I think they thought, they both very much believed that as Jewish people, 
our focus was not on our own or even just on Israel, but on people who were being victimized or discriminated against anywhere. And I really do admire that how much they developed that on their own. My father's best friend in, in college was Roger Wilkins, who was Roy Wilkins' nephew and great civil rights leader. And when I met Roger, he told me, he said, the thing I will always be touched about with your father was that after we graduated from law school in 1955 or 56, that my dad asked him to go into law practice together. He decided to take a policy life. He said, but you can't believe what that was. Nobody had a joint white-black law partnership in 1955 or 1956, two years after Brown. And he said it was one of the, the things that stayed with him his whole life. And so we really did have parents who led by their example. And I think related to me, David, uh, you know, there was a sense that, you know, they were teachers, lawyers, they were great concerned citizens. But, you know, next to, you know, even above Haagen-Dazs ice cream and Michigan football and basketball, this sense that fighting for justice, speaking up uh, was just was just uh, uh, essential. And it, it, it affected me and it made me want to not just, you know, be even be kind of the citizens they were, but made me want to devote my, my full life to it. When did your family get here? Uh, presumably they were an immigrant family. When did they arrive here in the, in the States? You know, we were like a lot of families. There wasn't like a super dramatic story, but basically it was a story of Jewish families uh, leaving uh, Europe uh, really in the time around before World War I. So they weren't, they weren't families that escaped from the Holocaust, but they... They were families that found their way, that found their way here, and uh, um, and you know, my grandfather was kind of a prominent lawyer who lost everything in the Great Depression. Moved to Miami Beach, did not buy land there, so uh, we 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 were a middle class family a lot because uh, we some of our our uh, grandparents didn't make the smartest investments at times, but. Uh, but they were. She grew up in Miami Beach. He grew up in Brooklyn. He lived on the same street Bernie Sanders did. Went to the same school that uh, Bernie and and he was a classmate of Justice Ginsburg. They knew each other, uh, at, you know, at James Madison High School. They served on student government together. You um you mentioned that you were died in the wool University of Michigan. There you were a tennis player as a kid. People now I've seen you play basketball. I've I've, I've played with you. Uh, people wouldn't look at you necessarily and say, here is a, a, a an all-state athlete, but there you were. But you didn't go to the University of Michigan. You went to the University of Minnesota. This seems like apostasy of some sort. Yeah, it was. You know, I'd gotten into Brown, and then I got, a, I got offered a tennis scholarship to the University of Minnesota. I'd grown up watching Big Ten tennis. It was very exciting to me. Um, but, you know, Michigan football, Michigan basketball, that, that's not just a sports, that's, that's our family religion. That's the deepest, most universal kind of family activity memory. So even when I went to Minnesota, I uh, very first year, uh, every year I'd go sit on the Michigan side when they play Minnesota. And of course, the first year I'm there, Minnesota upsets number one Michigan uh, uh, 1977. <laughs> and I come back and my room has graffiti all over it. You know, go go home, <laughs> Ann Arbor boy. If you're not going to root for our team, why are you here? But the idea that I could root ever against my my dad and 
my mom, yeah. you know, sacrilege. Sacrilege. Yeah. yeah. So you uh, did what uh, a lot of young people do who have the ability to do it, which is you did very well in college and absent a really good idea of what to do. You went to law school and you went to Yale Law School. I mean, did you did you have an idea what you wanted to do with that law degree? Did you want to follow in your father's footsteps? Did you want to be a uh, a civil rights lawyer? Uh, civil rights law was deep in our family. I mean, watching my dad take that case to you know, win the first 14th Amendment uh, case ever for girls to play uh, in high school sports, watching Judge Damon Keith, a legend, rule on his behalf. One of my mentors, Paul Diamond, uh, are, you know, wrote the briefs for many of the big desegregation cases before the Supreme Court. So I was kind of on two paths. There was part of me that wanted to do civil rights uh, and thought I would use that law school and, and did. And I did do some civil rights case. I even got to sit before the, you know, a counsel's table before the Supreme court on, on a civil rights case early after law school. But I also, uh, was interning for Carl Levin in 1980, Senator from Michigan. I saw how, I, I saw how Democrats got devastated on economics and, and how I thought bad we were at showing that you could be both for a growing economy and for the kind of compassion and economic justice that we were. And I saw somebody else writing uh, things that I was writing in high school, but much better, Bob Reich. And I went and I interned. Uh, I, I spent the summer with him. So you were a law student at Yale. Yeah. And then and you and you interned for Bob Reich at at Harvard, right? Right. And so my two summer internships. Wait, this goes along with going to Minnesota when your family was for the University of Michigan. <laughs> you just want to piss people off. Well, uh, you know, I worked for Bob Reich. And that really gave me a sense of what somebody could do in economic policy. The next summer, I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So I was kind of going back and forth between this economic policy world and the uh, the legal world. And I was publishing law review articles but I was doing economic policy for the Dukakis campaign, then for three years for Governor Mario Cuomo. But I think that day in 92, when George Stephanopoulos called me and said, do you want to come down to Little Rock and be the economic policy director for the, for the Clinton campaign? That was probably the moment where the decision was made. Once I had that opportunity, I never really looked back, and, and I've really done economic policy ever since. Well, let's just back up a few steps. You signed up with the uh, Dukakis campaign in 88, and you really weren't hired to do economic policy. You kind of emerged in the Dukakis campaign, uh, and you must have met George there, right, Stephanopoulos? You know, uh, I went in, you know, I'd gone to Yale Law School, Wharton Business School, and I went there as an intern. I punched holes. Uh, but I worked my way up and uh, I found what a lot of young people do, which is that if you can be that essential young person right. on a presidential campaign, they lose. You think you have nothing, but you've gained this reputation that means everything. And then the second thing was the peers I met. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't just George Stephanopoulos. I'll never forget when Susan Rice uh, is named national security advisor and and her and Sylvia Matthews are Sylvia Burwell now, the three of us hugged and said, can you believe when we were 20-somethings on the Dukakis campaign that we would have ever been national security advisor, OMB director, and national economic advisor? So the number of people that I met in 88, John Podesta, you know, it could just go on and on. It really did shape my life, even though it was a very disappointing and heartbreaking and losing campaign. 
Yeah, you, um, you, you mentioned you went to work for Mario Cuomo, and you worked very closely with him. And the expectation was, and I'm sure your expectation was, that he would run for president of the United States in uh, 1992. Uh, and it got to the point where there was a plane on the runway to take his petitions up to uh, and New Hampshire, and, and he decided not to do it. That must have been devastating to you. And tell me about him as a personality. Obviously, his family is become quite prominent, especially in the current climate. Well, I was like a lot of young people then. I'd heard his 1984 convention speech, and he was the soul of progressivism for me. So I was so honored uh, to work for him. And I had a job where I really reported directly to him. I advised him. I did work on state issues and service and, you know, many different issues. But I also was kind of his sounding board on national economic policy. And it was one of the, you know, most amazing things when he asked me to come play basketball with him one day <laughs> alone. We played basketball every Wednesday night and, and then every Saturday morning he would have a smaller game. But he took me one-on-one and he said, you know, I'm asking a few people about running for president. And so to have been in that loop for a few months where you couldn't tell a soul and there was and and the honor of being in it was uh was deep. I bet you took. I bet you took an elbow or two also. Huh? Well, you know, it's funny because I've gone on Chris Cuomo's show, and Chris Cuomo, when he would play, a, uh, when he, I would be on his team, and his dad would cover me, and he would follow me all the time. Yeah, notorious for that. And Chris once like threw a ball, and he walked out in protest because he was like, "Dad, this is not fair. None of these <laughs> guys will call a foul on you because you write their paycheck." And I have to say, yeah, there was something to that. He, as you say, he was considered the soul of progressivism. Bill Clinton was on a different track. He was, uh, he ran the Democratic Leadership Conference. He was developing sort of uh, an alternative to kind of traditional democratic progressivism, uh, which had taken a beating in the 80s to Reagan. Uh, And that was one of his appeals was that he was, you know, he was a, a, a Southern progressive on race issues, and but also someone who charted a different path on issues like trade and some social welfare policy. How was it making the transition from the quintessential progressive to the guy who was basically critiquing traditional progressivism? Right. Uh, I think that people were expecting a campaign uh, in 92 of, of Mario Cuomo as kind of the old Democrat and Clinton as the new Democrat. And, and you know, we knew that when we worked for Mario Cuomo. But, you know, I used to read all Clinton's speeches and there were things I did start to really admire, which is that he knew how to speak. He knew how to do policy in a value-based way. He would talk about these values, community responsibility, opportunity, and then he would use policies like national service to support them. And what I really found was that he was, you know, quite liberal, quite progressive, but he, but, but at that time, David, it's hard to describe to people after 12 years of Republican rule, you really wondered whether we'd ever have a democratic white house. And, you know, the sense that there was someone who had a bit of a strategy, a plan, uh, and he was quite good, I think, ultimately at bringing the whole democratic party with him. So, you know, I think that, for the moment and the times, he really did help bring Democrats back to the White House. We wouldn't have had Justice Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer without 
them. And it was very important. But yes, it was tough. And when I first joined the campaign uh, and really my first year, I mean, you know, I was always looked a little bit as the old Democrat big spender. And it was often Bob Reich and George Stephanopoulos and I arguing, you know, at times to focus less on the deficit and invest more. Uh, but, you know, Clinton liked that tension. He he believed so much in public investment that that I, I never really felt, uh, you know, there were decisions he made during eight years, six of those when you had all Republican Congress, which I didn't always agree with. But I always felt he had a very, very progressive heart and still do. It's interesting to hear you talk about this, because one of the things that people uh, and you we should point out you first were the deputy director of the National Economic Council during the first years of the Clinton administration, and ultimately you became the director of the National Economic Council and very much involved in negotiating with the Congress. Uh, and by the time you got to the uh, to the NEC with a Republican Congress over these economic issues, but the the critique of Clinton and by extension you is that you were very politically agile, politically adroit. Some people would call it a compliment. But what was meant by that was you did, you know, incremental things that you and Clinton's Clinton's uh, address to the Congress, his State of the Union address, in which he said the era of big government is over. And everybody interpreted that as a dagger through the heart of progressivism and so on. And I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because good things came out of all of these negotiations that you were involved in, but they involved compromise and um, talk a little bit about governance <laughs> and what progress requires. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. One of the reasons I write a book like Economic Dignity is I wanted to keep people's eye on the ball because I do think, David, that a lot of times we go back and we debate was something a right or wrong decision when a lot of times it's so constrained by the political constraints, the control of Congress, and you can kind of believe that what you were doing was the best thing you can do at the time and still believe with new information and evolving trends, there's a better way. And, you know, for me, uh, we came in at a time when, you know, the deficit was like the number one issue in the country on both sides. And, you know, President Clinton brought it down in a way that was quite progressive. You know, just to give an example of something on the earned income tax credit, and this isn't just him, but he won that battle. He won that battle for the value that if you work full time, you shouldn't have to raise your children with poverty. And he, he won the battle that that wasn't welfare, that that was a tax incentive that was helping people work. And that helped pass the torch to Pelosi and ultimately Obama. If you look right now today, a, a, a single parent with two kids making 17000 gets an extra $7,000. That's a huge change. It was done more by, you know, fighting in the trenches. You know, Clinton loses a lot his power because he goes for a very, very progressive health care plan that was disruptive. And in the first year, the yeah. first two years. So, you know, Bill Clinton was out there somewhat lost control because in some ways uh, he was seen as going too far. I wish we had done it better. But I think that when we were there I wish he hadn't said the era of big government was over. But remember what happened. The Republicans had just taken control. Seven, eight months later, he shuts down the government rather than block grant Medicaid, cut Medicare, cut back the EITC, block grant, food stamps. He stands up and actually protects the Great Society programs. So you look over eight years, 
you look when you have six years, we went six years with all Republican Congress. You know, nonetheless, new markets tax credit, the CHIP program that provided universal health care uh, uh, for children. Uh, he was ahead on Kyoto and climate change when the rest of the Democrats in Congress were behind him. So, you know, you were dealing with the constraints at the time. I do think that said, there are a lot of things that we've learned since then that you would do differently. You've seen that during the next decade, the era of globalization led to a complete, uh, I think, weakening of worker power, domination of economic concentration. And whether or not Bill Clinton should have sensed that in 1997 or not, we can have a debate about. But what I would say to progressives is when we can all see we're in the same path, place now, let's join, let's unify, uh, let's agree where we can ag agree instead of, you know, relitigating every old battle. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You, you negotiated, uh, you were one of the negotiators for the uh, China's admission to the World Trade Organization. And the theory was that you usher China into a rules-based global economy and uh, that that would be better for everyone. You negotiate, you, you were there when the uh, financial modernization bill was passed in 1999 that did away with some of the Depression-era restraints on banks. These two things became controversial later. I guess you were referring to them I mean, do you have thoughts looking back? Uh, would you have done the same thing in the same way? You know, China was very much driven by the view that President Clinton was the first post-Cold War president and that bringing China, Russia together was, was going to lead to a more peaceful world to bring them into a rules-based uh, process. And, and I think that that was, it was very much driven by our foreign policy team who believes Yu Renji and Zhang Zemin uh, offered an opportunity for a more enlightened China and that we should we should work with them. I think that instinct was was a noble one, uh, first of all. Uh, but secondly, I, and this is where like life gets more complicated. Bill Clinton doesn't take the deal first. He says, I want protections in case China tries to surge. He puts in a 421 pro process that allows us to block surges of their imports. So he fights and holds up the deal for six, seven months to get that. Then the next administration not only doesn't use it, they reject five times where it's brought and, and or three times where it's recommended. And it's not till Obama becomes president that that's used. So it's hard. And I think one of the lessons there, though, is that one, uh, you have to kind of think about what the next administration might do, that even if you have things designed to block things, I think an Al Gore presidency would have had a very different future uh, on what would have happened with trade. The theory of trade uh, was that America's economy and America, American businesses would prosper from opening up markets around the world, that trade also would raise living standards around the world, which it has, uh, and that would make for a more peaceful world, that it would create a set of rules of the road that would be followed and so on. The whole, you know, obviously Trump, uh, President Trump has blown the whole thing up and there is, and there, there is and continues to be hostility even within elements of the Democratic Party and the labor movement about how these trade deals have worked. 
What are we looking at now, do you think, in terms of global arrangements? I mean, uh, do you think uh, that if a Biden gets elected, that there'll be a return to some sort of push toward global? Because obviously the, the Obama administration had n negotiated this uh, very elaborate trans-Pacific trade agreement that was meant to be a strategic hedge against China. Trump pulled, pulled us out of it. I'm just wondering where you think that all is. It's, it's probably a rabbit hole, but I want to go down it. Sure. The first thing I want to say is, you know, I was trying to defend or explain what the intentions at the time are. That doesn't mean that I don't think that much of the critique, particularly from the progressive movement, from uh, the labor unions, has not proved to be correct. And I think, you know, President Clinton himself would say that if he had to do it again, he would have said no trade until we have that economic compact in place. And that I think that because you relied on Republican votes, it was too driven by corporate interest. And so, uh, you know, again, we can we can kind of relitigate. And it's totally fair, as you say, what people thought or what their motivations at the time are. Can there be a progressive trade regimen? I think that, that I'm very enthusiastic about that now, and here's why. I think that the reality for President Obama and President Clinton was when you wanted to move on trade, you were relying on Republican votes, and that made it harder. And now I think you see Democrats saying, no, we have a progressive vision. We're going to put workers fundamentally at the table. And if we do that, and if we focus on locating jobs more in the United States, if we put workers then we can deliver those votes. And I do think you started to see Pelosi do that recently. So I think that, you know, again, you can debate things in the past, but I think the I think there's a lot more unity. I agree very much with the with, again, a lot of the uh, uh, with with the progressive movement, the labor movement. I think they did turn out to be right about a lot of the dangers of globalization. And I think that a, I think that a progressive vision now could be more open to what we do, not just trade, but how do we make sure we're creating millions of jobs for climate change on electric cars? I think it, it can be combined with more of a strategy for how we create the kind of economic future we want now. And I think if that brings Democrats to the table, then you get out of this world that I think President Obama found himself stuck in too, it was after I was gone, but where you're, you're relying on Republicans for votes, and therefore you end up uh, relying too much on corporate America for structuring deals. And now I think you see Biden and others all agreeing, worker first, worker central, jobs in the United States. And I think people are right to say that just the idea of globalization, where you just source jobs everywhere, uh, has weakened worker power. It's led to economic concentration, uh, and it's tilted the balance more against working families. And you know whether whether people should have known about all these trends or could have done something in the '90s. I think there's a lot of democratic unity right now on what is needed for a progressive uh, trade agenda. So, Gene, nobody I know relished being in government and having the ability to um, impact on these issues more than you. You did, as you mentioned, uh, two tours of duty. I want to talk about what you did in between because it's so interesting to me. You spent most of the Clinton administration inside, I guess all of the Clinton administration inside, inside the government. And then you went out to Hollywood and not being in an administration, you went and created a, helped create a whole nother White House out there on the West Wing 
TV show. I was wondering if that was just a, a refuge for a romantic who loves governance <laughs> while he was out of office. Well, David, David, it's really important to describe what I did do out of office. My last year with President Clinton, I led the delegation to uh, Senegal for the declaration of the second millennial goal of universal education. And I founded the universal, the Center of Universal Education, which still exists at Brookings today and was probably the main helper on the outside for Michelle Obama's efforts. And so, yeah, no, no, you, you've done <laughs> splendid work. I don't mean to in any way gainsay that. I'm just trying to, I was trying to make an elegant segue into <laughs> what this very interesting side trip you took into politics. But not only did you start that, but you've written books about it and you've been an advocate and you deserve great credit for this whole movement to educate women and girls across the planet. But I still need to hear about the West Wing. Right. So uh, the middle, middle of my last year, I come up with an idea for a West Wing TV show. Every time I jog, I work on it and I write it out and I send it into Brad Whitford to play Josh Lyman. And he sends it to Tom Schlamme, the director, and they say, we're going to have you meet with Aaron Sorkin. I come out to meet with Aaron Sorkin and they say, well, he's not here. He just got arrested for bringing taking mushrooms to an airport. <laughs> but the writers will meet with you in the, the, the mess there at the Warner Brother lot. I walk in. There's a seat open for me. I sit down. I introduce myself to the writer on my left. Her name's Allison Abner. Yeah, that's my wife. So that's how I met. We are when I, Aaron Sorkin always says that the two things that have lasted from the West Wing are are his residuals and, and my marriage to Allison. <laughs> yeah, well, you both did well by it. But tell me what that experience was like. Tell me what you were trying to help create there. Well, you know, for me, it was just an amazing opera. It was just it was fun, David. It was just a, doing something exciting. But it was an opportunity to try to bring the reality of the White House to them. They were all ears. I wrote memos all the time. It was exciting that I was able to get writing credit on uh, on on four different um, episodes. Uh, but it was, um, uh, you know, it, it, it really, I, I took very seriously trying to make it realistic. And David, I think one of my funniest moments was, one episode, which I actually didn't get the writing credit for, but I gave most of the information, was called Shutdown. And I went through the whole Clinton shutdown. And we came up with this idea together of him marching up to the, to the Capitol, Bartlett. And I'm sitting there in the Oval Office with President Obama. And John Boehner, the speaker, hasn't called him back. And President says, you know, I ought to be like Bartlett and just go walking up there. <laughs> and my head just exploded that here... I had lived that. I had helped get that in art. And now I'm in another Oval Office and he's referring to the show I did about the previous administration. I don't know whether that's art imitating art, imitating art, but it was some version. And I, I burst out and I said that. And I remember President Obama looked at me like, OK, that probably wasn't the most appropriate comment right now, but I can understand why you felt compelled to, to tell all of us about that. So, um, you know, what strikes me thinking back at that whole series, which is still a classic and, and people still watch, is it seems sort of like a gauzy fantasy right now. And there's so much cynicism and so much deflation. I mean, do you look back at that and say, boy, I mean, because Aaron Sorkin, he is a kind of romantic about democracy and 
you know, the, these institutions? David, you know, it's funny. When I was leaving the White House, the number one question was like, you know, what's more realistic, West Wing scandal, uh, you know? And I, I really do feel that the West Wing captured something that may not be true of the Trump White House, almost certainly isn't, but I think was true of the Obama White House and probably the previous Republican White Houses and the Clinton White Houses, was that these are basically good people with who care about service and they're fighting in this difficult political environment. It's impossible. They're screwing up. But I think it did show what public service really was like, that it was this sense of camaraderie on people who want to do something better. And you're stuck in this political environment, but that's not your fundamental motivation. And I think it's beautiful that, for example, Cody Keenan, who was the one of Obama's chief speechwriter, was inspired by watching that show. And I and I think that people should not think that that was just gauzy fantasy, because I think that basic camaraderie there. I mean, look, I saw that with you and Pluff and the rest of us in the Obama White House. We're there trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing on saving Chrysler. We're not just doing political polls or or looking for deals. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that. It's so interesting. Obviously, you, you were a counselor to uh, Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, before you uh, returned to your old job at the NEC in the Obama administration. Um, and I, I remember very, very vividly the meeting we had in March of 2009 when President Obama was trying to decide whether to intervene to uh, save essentially two of the big automakers, GM and Chrysler, uh, who were on the brink of insolvency. And there was a very emotional meeting. I mean, you talk about the West Wing. Uh, it could well have been an episode of the West Wing. And I, I remember you uh, particularly speaking very emotionally as a son of Michigan about what the dissolution of the auto industry would mean to families across that state. You must remember it as well. I, I certainly do. Um, it was an example of, of rigorous opinion where there was division on the economic team. And Ron Bloom and Brian Deese and I, the three of us kind of... They were, uh, they were the, uh, running the auto task force. And, and they with me were, were among the lead champions for the idea we should save Chrysler. And so we divided up the arguments that we were going to say to President Obama. When my turn came, I said that, you know, this could be like the manufacturing equivalent of Lehman Brothers, that it could be a, a downward cycle that would, what I knew, would take not just the, the Chrysler with it, but the supply, but all the suppliers, all the people who created businesses their whole lives, all the people who relied on them. And it could be a downward spiral that we could never recover from. And you know, I, I mean, again, you know, I do have that that elevated view of public service because, you know, it was frustrating times. But when you had a moment to affect the president of the United States on a decision like that, when I had moments where I could win the fight for expanding the ITC with President Clinton or uh, win the fight with President Obama of extending emergency unemployment insurance, you know, for another year, those are those moments where you realize that you being there and your passion and working together, you may have made millions of people's lives better. And I do think that whether it's the fake West Wing or the real West Wing, I think that is what we all live for. And I think yeah. most of the people I've worked with 
that's what their that's what their their aspirations were. It was in some vi- form their vision of economic justice of being able to say they made a difference. Yeah. Would you go in again? I have a more complicated family uh, situation with my wife uh, doing so well out here and my daughter in school. But, you know, never say never, because I think that that type of public service, again, you know, sometimes when you're in, when you're in those type of jobs, you know, maybe you're fighting for Head Start funding and you win the fight and you think, wow, that was just one day and $300 million more is going to go to poor children's education. And I have to admit, it's you can write a lot of op-eds uh, that will never do sometimes the good you can do in one really good day of advocacy in a White House. Well, listen, I, I, I wept. I wept the night the Affordable Care Act passed. I wept as the father of a child who has a chronic illness, epilepsy, and we almost went bankrupt and uh, in, in because of it when I was a young reporter. And uh, just thinking about the families who wouldn't have to go through what we went through because of that law was overwhelming, and it made it very, it made it very real. There are also, Gene, those days that are not uh, that good, where, you, where, you, where you're facing really, really tough uh, decisions. Um, you know, one, one, and you were involved in these discussions about how to keep the financial system running and still exact some penalty from those who had acted irresponsibly during the run-up to the financial crisis. And there's still debates now about, well, why, why weren't more people prosecuted? Why didn't more people pay a price? I'm sure you get those questions all the time. Yeah, and I have a lot of sympathy for them. Obviously, you and I don't, you know, didn't, didn't have and shouldn't have had any control over what was done in the Justice Department. But it, it was hard. We knew it at the time. We knew you were somewhat had to stabilize the guilty. And unlike right now, you did not have a, uh, Republicans who were willing to work with you. When I see right now Democrats willing to give trillions of dollars uh, to, to help save this economy, they're not worried who's in the White House. I think of what could have been done if we had had that kind of willingness of the other side to put politics aside and give the economic firepower so that we could have gotten another trillion dollars instead of having everybody watching over our shoulders on every penny that we were spending. And I think everybody, there is a misunderstanding that, that, and I saw it just the other day, someone saying, well, you know, they were, they wanted to get Republican votes so they didn't have a bigger recovery act. Actually, it was Democratic votes that uh, were holding things up. There were Democrats who insisted on uh, a smaller uh, package back then, and, and you needed 60 votes in the Senate. But be that as it may, do you? I, I remember you guys, uh, particularly um, uh, Secretary Geithner, Larry Summers, and many others arguing about the importance of getting those deficits down, of the deficits being, uh, I guess the formula was 3% of, uh, uh, of GDP. Um, that became sort of orthodoxy. And um, we're facing a situation now where we're entering a self-imposed almost second Great Depression uh, and a lot of money is going out the door, two and a half trillion already, three trillion in this. How should people think about deficits in this context right now? I think that there has probably never been a case stronger for not worrying about deficits at all in responding to this crisis. I think that uh, uh, the world has really changed in the last 
uh, seven, eight years. We have seen the ability for deficits to go up with, a, with interest rates not rising. And now, if you, right now, the, all we should care about is how we keep our economy whole. These are one-time huge amounts of money that we'll do. If we don't do them, we will uh, have a longer recession or depression that will be worse fiscally. But even greater than that, it'll be worse for our humanity, our economic dignity, how well we take care of people. And I think you've seen uh, the Federal Reserve chairman almost really encouraging Speaker Pelosi to go bid, that you can borrow a huge amount right now at the lowest interest rates. So things like deficits, people shouldn't be for deficit reduction or against deficit reduction. They should look at the, the economic times. I think in 93 it mattered. I think right now it should be a zero focus. I think that uh, we probably thought it mattered more than it did. Of course, the time that we were doing that, deficits were 10% and there was an overwhelming political emphasis to do something. Uh, but I think that we have learned right now that it is not having the impact that people thought. And as Kane said, when you see different information, you ought to change. And right now there has never been a stronger case for doing whatever is necessary. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the Axe Files. So the question is, uh, there are things that, that, that can be done right now to remediate this, the, the suffering that people are, are going through in a country where 36 million people already have taken unemployment insurance, where... 40% of people who earn under $40,000 a year have lost their jobs. Um, but the question is, structurally, are there things that should be done, not just to address the immediate problem, but to address the fault lines in our economy and our society that this virus has, has lifted up in sharp relief? This is sort of what the topic of your book is, but it's all, uh, I mean, that's what e economic dignity is about. It's also what Biden is considering right now as to what he should put forward as a program for recovery here. Well, you know, David, one of the things I put in the book is, is I refer to Martin Luther King's speech at the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers strike. This was the speech on March 18th. He gives to 25,000 people packed in a church. And, and it's when he says all labor has dignity, but the line before it, is even more powerful today. He says, someday our nation will realize that, that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician to our health and well-being. That probably seemed like an ideal. This is that, that moment. This is that moment when we're not just, and we should need to make sure we get this moment right. It is not just about that we are relying on the health aid or the child care worker or the caregiver uh, now. And so therefore, we should, they should have hazard pay or they should have uh, greater health care. We've always relied on them. They've always been among the most important jobs. And so now people are forced to deal with that dissonance in a bigger way. You have to say that and you had a great conversation with Mary Kay Henry about this, who, who her and Ijin Poo have been two of the biggest supporters of my book on economic dignity. And I think it's because they so feel like these workers have been invisible, that economics has made them invisible, that you focus just on whether they have a job as to whether they have protections 
and paid sick leave. And now someone has to say, wow, that nursing assistant who's risking uh, her life for my family, half of them couldn't take a day of paid sick leave for their own family. That farm worker uh, uh, who's giving us food, half of them don't have health care. And so the question is, is this just going to be about having the bold response we need, the kind of essential worker bill of rights? Or is this this moment where a progressive president like Joe Biden can seize that moment when we're feeling that dissonance and say, this is the time for a new New Deal for workers. This is the time for an economic dignity compact. And I think that is not this radical or socialist agenda. I think, you know, I quote Teddy Roosevelt in my book, Republican President, 108 years ago, essentially saying people who work, contribute, do their part, should be able to have a living wage. And he says that means being able to retire with security, raise your children with security. I think that there is a chance for a Democratic progressive president to bring together that value moment and put together a new New Deal. And I think that, uh, you know, if not now, when? Uh, and I think that that will be, uh, I think the moment is ripe for him to do it. I think the country's ready to hear it. And uh, I think he'll have to have a major job mobilization plan too. But I think that can go, that can go together uh, with a a new dignity compact for all workers. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the tenor of the primary debate was about sort of moderation versus versus a more uh, venturesome platform. And now uh, uh, now we're in this moment, the vice president is talking about uh, not just rebuilding the economy, but transforming it. He was, as we both remember, in the White House, he was the guy who always was pushing this issue of the middle class and working people and the dignity of work into the main main room of discussion you know frankly when 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 others were a little bit more clinical uh, about what needed to be done he was very visceral about what are we going to do for these working families but he wasn't as venturesome in the primaries as he is now appropriately given the magnitude of the challenge we face so what you wrote this book obviously before all of this, a lot of your remedies are very relevant to this. And, but, but just tell me what you think are the most important things that need to be done to secure economic dignity. And let me just say parenthetically, it is interesting that we now recognize these folks as essential workers when, and, and for the honor, they get, out, they get to go out and risk their lives. It's like, yeah, you know what? You are essential. You go out <laughs> and do this. And uh, and we appreciate you, and we'll bang our we'll bang our pots in in tribute to you. Well, you know, David, it's it's funny in that same Martin Luther King speech, he refers to the notion of just recognizing people's dignity and not asking on it. And and that's something I criticize in the book of Ben Sass and Marco Rubio, these people who who talk about dignity of work and then vote against every minimum wage bill, every health care bill. But the line King says is is. What good is it to win the right to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford to buy your family a meal? And I think it's beautiful that we applaud and call people heroes. But if you do not have a compact that allows them to work with dignity, raise their families with dignity, retire with dignity, it's going to fall empty. I mean, I, I describe the three pillars of economic dignity that should be our North Star, whether you can care for your family and be there at life's most precious moments. Uh, number two, can you pursue your potential purpose and sense of meaning? And three, can you work with respect and not 
domination and humiliation. And I think that an agenda has to look at all of them. And we can see those. One, do we have the kind of living wage, healthcare, universal paid sick leave that allows you to care for family and be there for family? Does everybody really, you know, we're, have second chances? We're, we're a first chances. We're a country that idealizes that. We're the country that first got rid of debt prisons and, and had a fresh start for people coming out of bankruptcy. And yet, when you look at our criminal justice system, you look at dislocated workers, the longtime unemployed, we're among the worst at giving people a true first or second chance to pursue their potential. And third, and I think this is really, this is so critical, none of that really can give you dignity if you do not have protections against domination and humiliation, because you will do what you need to to support your family, and then you can suffer abuse, sexual harassment. And right now, the idea that when these essential workers try to stick up for themselves, they can face retaliation uh, because they can't organize I think what Mary Kay Henry said on your last show is so powerful, and I talk about this in the book. You need to restore the general power of the union movement, but you need to look at every different type of worker and say, how can people speak in a collective voice? And again, I think the fight for 15, I think what Ai Jin Poo and them are doing is they're saying, even if you're not maybe a worker who fits in the classic sense of, of a perhaps union pay, a dues-paying union member, what can you do through passing state laws through sectoral bargaining, through, uh, you know, wage boards to make sure that everybody has a collective voice. Because if not, every worker is just the, the, the tank man at Tiananmen Square standing up alone against a big corporation. So, Gene, you have sat at tables over several decades at which arguments have been made about what are the limits of appropriate government action relative to business. And you, you know, you've said that in the Clinton years in particular, that you didn't throw 30 yard passes, you know, you ground out yards, uh, a few yards at a time. But this seems like a, a time for longer passes. But you're going to run into the same debate that we've seen before in a closely divided country put your political hat on, do you think that there is going to be, given the deep economic problems, more of a receptivity to laws that deal with corporate governance that require more worker representation, that uh, ban stock buybacks and the kinds of things that divert resources from rewarding workers within corporations as corporations? I mean, do you think the environment has changed sufficiently for these big progressive kinds of initiatives to become a reality because you're still going to have a divided Congress. You may have more Democrats than Republicans. You're still going to have a lot of Republicans there. And do you see this debate turning? Well, look, as you said, um, you know, there's a lot of times you can look back and say, well, we, you know, if you'd been more woke, what could you've actually done? You have an all Republican Congress or you have divided government. So of course, the number one thing that's going to matter is whether you have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and you at least have that moment. But I think you're pointing to something that's very powerful, which is I think some of these issues of corporate power are, are, are not just seen as progressive issues right now. I think a lot of independents, a lot of moderate Republicans feel that there is too much corporate uh, uh, power, too much economic concentration. I think that I think I've come to believe very much that big tech has too much power and that there needs to be more aggressive antitrust policies. So I think, you know, just to give you an example, 
I think if you, I think polls would show that if you ask people, do you think that a corporation's main goal should be towards their shareholders or to their workers? I would bet you that you would get strong numbers saying towards workers and shareholders. I don't think the typical American, not just the typical progressive, buys into that notion that a corporation is just about the profits and their bonuses. So I think that they're, I think you'll get the resistance from Republicans and their donors, but I think the kind of agenda that Elizabeth Warren was pushing uh, and I think has led uh, has a lot of resonance. And I think, you know, to talk about workers being, being able to participate on the board, changing our laws so that workers and stakeholders, not just shareholders, is your top priority. Uh, uh, limiting, uh, you know, having a more aggressive antitrust policy that, uh, that is less deferential to big, you know, mergers and uh, power. I think that is ripe. And I think that, uh, I think that, that uh, I think even some Republicans are starting to realize that if they get behind on that, they're going to get run over. So yeah, I think that there is you know, a lot, a lot of receptivity there. And I think it went to our trade argument before. I don't think people are going to accept anymore the idea that industries themselves are calling a lot of the shots on priorities. They're going to want to know much more clearly, what does this mean for jobs in the United States? What's it mean for our dignity? What's it means for our community? And if that means a tiny bit less efficiency or GDP, people will choose, I think, right now that sense of economic dignity and jobs and communities uh, over a corporate or more, you know, purely efficiency-oriented uh, goal. Well, one of the things that the um, business roundtable, among others, have recognized is that if you don't have a strong consumer uh, component to your economy, your economy ultimately uh, fails. Yeah, but, you know, look, look what happened there. You know, they go out, I'm glad they made that statement. But if you don't change the laws, I'm sorry, people will revert back. And look what happened with the PPP, the, the, the big small business loan program. All that nice words, but when they had a chance to essentially give loans to that were like, like sending out life preservers to people drowning, they went back to who's a, who's a concierge client? Yeah, who's a customer? Who's well off? So, you know, it's nice to see those words. I'd rather see us put in the laws that make them have to compete on a high road. Right. You spent about a few months working, uh, doing philanthropic uh, work for Goldman Sachs, for which you, uh, <laughs> you, you were reminded again and again and again uh, for years thereafter. But uh, you do, you travel in that, in that world, and I'm wondering what you're hearing from people. Is there a a genuine recognition that the center won't hold and that uh, we can't go back to business as usual? You know, I think some people realize that and some don't. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I supported a wealth tax and I got a bit of abuse for some people on those things. But look, I believe that um, I believe that that this is the right thing. I think that, uh, you know, I the nice thing for me now is I'm not constrained by what we can get in a deal with like, you know, a divided government and, you know, all that. This is a chance for me right now in doing a book like this to speak my heart and my vision. And I think that is one in which your North Star at every moment is 
this concept of economic dignity for all people. And that's your North Star. All the other things only have legitimacy to the degree that they're a means to that goal. If you can't show why a respect of corporate economic concentration or uh, only uh, uh, only the CEO getting to decide who sits on a board, if you can't show that that's in the interest of the economic dignity of workers, then I want to say through this book, through my speaking, that then it's not a valid goal. And we don't have to accept so many things we do. And just one example, right now, it is just everywhere. And David, it hurts me to say this was in the White House too, that the people who cleaned our offices were not considered employees of the White House. They were contracted out. That has happening everywhere in corporate America. It is happening everywhere in, in many governments. And it leads to a second-class citizenship, which is not just lower pay. It's, it's not being invited to the take your daughter to work days. It's not being given the full dignity. We don't have to accept that. We can change our laws to encourage more first-class citizenship at work. Yeah. Let me ask you about this consolidation, because one of the things that seems apparent to me is that there are a lot of small businesses that are just not going to survive this siege. And that, it seems to me, opens the door to even bigger, uh, bigger, you know, more consolidation that we're going to move in the wrong direction uh, as a result of this. Do you have that fear? I do. I do. I think we have to watch out for it. I think we're already I think we're already seeing it. I think there is way too much consolidation. You know, in in my book on structuring markets, I talk about the I talk about what happened with the railroads a century ago. What basically happened was the railroads were so essential that you had to use them. And therefore, people like Rockefeller could figure out how to use just sheer brute force, a gun to your head. There is a real analogy right now when people have to use Amazon or have to use Google or have to use Facebook. When they're when they get so large like that that they can basically say, "You want to use this essential platform? It may not be a railroad, but it can be as essential for retailers and businesses. You do it my way or the highway." That's not our vision of the country. That's not winning by performance or quality or better marketing. It's winning by brute force. And we ought to have economic rules that have a bias towards competition and a bias against the capacity to use brute economic force. And I I just, you know, I don't, you know, I, I know Facebook does wonderful things and I have friends like Sheryl Sandberg who work there, but the idea they have to own Instagram and WhatsApp and that we wouldn't be better off if they were all competing with each other and that it wouldn't, it would be better to have a bias against buying up smaller companies that could be competitors, of course we'd have a better country. And it's not about what's right for business. It's about what's right for all of us. And so right now, if this period, uh, before you have a new antitrust policy, people are just buying up, then yes, uh, every little person who's in trouble right now who doesn't have the cushion, then yes, you could see that economic concentration get better at a time when I think most of the American public uh, wants to, to, I mean, get bigger at a time when most of the American public would like to see uh, less economic concentration and more entrepreneurship, more competition, more respect for the small business owner, the person around the corner uh, uh, that, that, that many that, that are been the backbone of our country for so long. The book is Economic Dignity, and I have a feeling that we're going to see Gene Sperling somewhere 
down the line here, uh, uh, not just writing about these topics, but somehow trying to impact on them in, uh, in the government. But that's just a guess. Just knowing you, I have a slight suspicion about that. Anyway, it's always great to see you, and it is extraordinary that the times and the topic you're writing about have come together in such a remarkable way here, but it's good to talk to you at this moment, and I will see you down the line. Gene Sperling. David, you're kind to have me. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.